Many of you know my affinity for John's gospel, so we're going to actually be in John 19 this morning as we look at the, the death and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So if you want to turn there, you can. It's not breaking news to say that we're facing a strange and difficult time right now. But it still may be an understatement to say it that way. Many people that I've spoken with who have a lot more life experience than I do have unanimously said that they have never seen anything like this before. Things have changed so quickly. Our economy has stalled. Our schools have closed. Our sports teams benched. Dining rooms empty. Hospital rooms full. Shelves are bare. Our vocabulary has changed. I never knew what social distancing was until a few weeks ago. Our manufacturing has changed. Similar to World War II, businesses are actually altering the products they produce. Millions and millions have already lost their jobs and filed for unemployment. And as this drags on, more and more people are negatively affected, many in the worst possible way. Only God knows the true and lasting effect that this will have on our country and on our world. But amidst the chaos and the panic, and in spite of the rapid changes, there are always two truths that will never change and that will always bring peace to your heart. And that's that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And on the third day, he rose from the grave triumphantly, securing eternal life for all who trust him. Nothing in this world can ever or will ever change that. And so these next two Sundays, allow God's word to encourage you with those truths as we look at the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This morning we'll focus our attention on that first truth, on the death of Jesus Christ. Next Sunday is Easter, and Lord willing, we'll focus on his glorious resurrection. If you will, look at John chapter 19 and read along with me in the first three verses. John 19, verse 1 through 3. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands." The death of Jesus Christ began when Pilate ordered him to be scourged. Roman soldiers conducted three types of scourgings. The very, the very first scourging, or the least severe, was just a lashing uh, accompanied by a pretty stern warning. And this happened for less serious offenses. The second type of, of beating was a, was a severe beating that was intended to bring the victim into full submission. But the third and most severe, and the one I believe Jesus Christ endured, they called the verberatio. And when this scourging was ordered, the victim was stripped and forced to his knees. His hands were lifted above his head and tied to the top of a scourging post. The device that was used to inflict blows upon the victim was a whip with at least three long leather strands and Tied to the end of each strand 
were small lead weights or bits of metal or sharp bones. And so what would happen is that the weights would pummel and punish the victim while the metal and the bone would, would grab and seize the victim's flesh and rip it apart. And there were two Roman soldiers who would both stand ready, each with his own whip, and they would take turns beating the prisoner and striking his shoulders and his back until they were exhausted or until their commanding officer told them to stop. Not one moment of relief existed for the one being punished. One author even says that eyewitness records report that such brutal scourgings could leave victims with their bones and entrails exposed. The scourging was sometimes so brutal that the victim actually died while he was being beaten. And normally it didn't matter whether the victim lived or died while attached to the, the scourging post because this was a precursor to crucifixion anyway. But on that day, Jesus Christ survived the beating. And as if that were not painful and humiliating enough, though, he also then endured the twisted mockery of the soldiers. John writes in verse 2 that they, they plaited a crown of thorns and, and put it on his head. At this point, Jesus was already severely weakened, losing blood, and in excruciating pain. But Roman soldiers were never known for their compassion. And so they wove together this crown of thorns, and they coronated the king of the Jews with it. Now he endures more piercing pain, and blood began to pour down his face. But they're not finished yet. They drape a purple robe around Jesus, mocking this king of the Jews with the color of royalty. And this robe would stick to his lacerated back, making this even more brutal. But they're still not finished. They mock him as they say, Hail, King of the Jews, and John writes that they smote him with their hands. And the picture that we're given here is that these soldiers took turns coming up to Jesus and, and sort of pretending to bow down to pay homage, but instead of kissing his feet like they would their emperor, they punch him and slap him and hit him and strike him. And John even indicates that this was a repeated thing over and over. Matthew and Mark even mentioned that the whole cohort of soldiers was invited in to have fun with this prisoner, not just the two that scourged him. Possibly hundreds of soldiers took turns punching and slapping their creator. The pain is intense and excruciating, but the spiritual mockery and the humiliation going on must have been worse. Because Jesus Christ is the creator. He is the king of glory. He was unquestionably the strongest one there that day. And yet he allowed all this to take place. Humbly suffering for the sins of the world, not for his own. He had no sin. 
Undoubtedly, there are cries of agony, but he did not protest. As we read in Isaiah earlier, he was like a sheep. He was God's sheep, God's Passover lamb. Remember Isaiah wrote, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. But listen to what Isaiah said. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All of that brutal suffering that Jesus went through was for you. Every bit of it. But his sacrifice was not yet finished. Read with me once again, starting in verse 4. And we'll read from verse 4 through verse 22. And, and you, you all know me. Multiple sermons could be preached from these verses. But we'll simply read through most of them this morning and sort of advance the story to the cross itself. Verse 4, Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou, or where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have the power to crucify thee and the power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth, sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, 
For they crucified him and two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read, Many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The beating had ceased, but now it was time to execute this king, to finish the job. And Romans, they favored execution by crucifixion. But it was administered in different ways. Sometimes they used an X-shaped cross in which the victim's limbs would all be stretched out to cover the X. Sometimes they used a single pole in which the victim's arms would be fastened over his head. Sometimes they used a T-shaped cross in which the, the cross beam was set on top of the, the vertical pole. And then sometimes the cross beam was set lower, uh, which is probably the most familiar cross in, in our minds. We're told that Jesus bore his cross, and the word cross there uh, that John uses in verse 17, it does mean an upright stake. So it's possible that Jesus was crucified on one of these single poles. Sometimes, though, this word was also used to describe the cross beam uh, that, the, the, that the victim would carry uh, since the vertical pole was sometimes already uh, in the ground. Um, that's possible, too. Either way, we need to understand that the type of cross that Jesus bore is not nearly as important as the Jesus that the cross bore. He bore his cross, and this was a common thing. The condemned person, even though he was very weak and he was losing blood, he was expected to carry his cross, at least for as much as he could, and Jesus did that. He carried his cross as long as he could. Now, other gospel accounts tell us that a man named Simon was compelled to carry Jesus' cross for him. They don't state the reason for this, but it seems pretty likely that it was due to the physical weakness of Jesus at this point. He had been up all night long. He was dehydrated. He had lost enormous amounts of blood. He had just endured the verberatio. But John does not include Simon of Cyrene in his crucifixion account. Why not? Well, it wasn't because it didn't happen, and it wasn't because it wasn't important, and it wasn't to contradict the other gospel writers. But Simon's part in this does not support John's theme, which is that Jesus Christ is still in control even during these trying times. John doesn't misrepresent anything. Jesus did carry his cross. At some point, Simon helped him. But John... John does not mention Simon because he wants to emphasize the power and control Jesus has during this time. Jesus carried his cross. We're told they arrived at the place of a skull, which is called Golgotha. That's the Hebrew or the Aramaic word for this place. You may have heard the term Calvary, and that refers to the same place, but Calvary is the Latin word for this place. Verse 20 tells us that this was near to the city. And today the precise location is debated. But it was at that time in a very highly trafficked area just outside the city. 
And this was strategic. For the Romans, crucifixions were not simply painful and embarrassing and a nice way to get rid of criminals. Crucifixions were a warning. They were a deterrent. They wanted people to see what happened to anyone who went against the empire. And so crucifixions occurred in very public places. John writes that they crucified him. The Romans did not invent uh, crucifixion. Uh, Probably the Persians did. But it's been said before that the Romans perfected the crucifixion. It was such a brutal and torturous way to, way to die that Roman citizens could not be crucified unless the emperor himself granted the exception. The Roman philosopher Cicero said this. He said it was the most cruel and shameful of all punishments. Let it never come near the body of a Roman citizen, nay, not even near his thoughts or eyes or ears. Another author says that in polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity, not to be uttered in conversation. It would be like us talking about electric chairs and gas chambers around the dinner table. That is not the type of dinner time discussion that you want to be engaged in. Crucifixions were reserved for slaves, for prisoners of war, and for the lowest class of criminals and and terrorists. Brutal scourgings normally preceded it, which we see with Jesus. It was the most loathsome, degrading, embarrassing, and shameful act possible in the first century. The lowest form of execution imaginable. It was public, it was bloody, and it was cruel. Dr. Alexander Methrell describes it this way. He says, the pain was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word. Excruciating. Literally, excruciating means out of the cross. Think of that. They needed to create a new word because there was nothing in the language that could describe the intense anguish caused during the crucifixion. He goes on and says, once a person is hanging in the vertical position, crucifixion essentially is an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and diaphragm put the chest into the inhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale, the individual must push up on his feet so the tension on the muscles would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bones. After managing to exhale, the person would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. Again, he'd have to push himself up to exhale, scraping his bloody back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on and on and on until complete exhaustion would take over and the person wouldn't be able to push up and breathe anymore. That's the end of his quote. That was the death of the Son of God. But even during this brutal and agonizing death, 
John makes sure that we understand Jesus' perfect and loving nature still shine forth. Look at verse 23 through 27. Verse 23 through 27. We won't spend much time here, but I hope that you notice that the spirit and character of Jesus did not change one bit, even while he hung dying on the cross. Verse 23, John writes, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it. But cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, Behold thy son. Then he saith, saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. I find that amazing. While enduring this brutality, Jesus' main concerns were still following the law of God and showing love to other people. And he demonstrated and fulfilled both of those things by the way he treated his mother. By ensuring that Mary would be cared for after his death, he performed the duties of the firstborn son and kept the law of Moses by honoring his mother. Simultaneously, that also showed that love for someone else, even during his own hours of suffering, While the Roman soldiers were concerned about themselves and the, the clothes and the garments that they could selfishly secure, Jesus was still concerned about other people. What a lesson for us right there. But eventually, in verse 28 through 30, the suffering neared its completion and Jesus died. Let's look at verse 28 through verse 30. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and gave up the ghost. This phrase, it is finished. It comes from just one Greek word. And one author says about this word, this one word summary of Jesus' life and death is perhaps the single most important statement in all of Scripture. See, this word was used in the first century by merchants and by tax collectors to indicate when someone's obligation or debt was paid in full. This word was written on receipts to show that the debt was paid. When nothing else was owed, 
And isn't that a wonderful picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross? We are all sinners who have fallen short of God's glory. And Paul wrote in Romans that the wages of sin is death. Death is what we have earned. Death is what we deserve. There is no amount of service, no amount of good works, no amount of sacrifice, no amount of coming to church, no amount of offering given. Nothing we can do could ever pay off what we owe. We will always wind up short. And since we can't pay the debt, then we've got to serve the punishment. We would have to accept what we earned But since Jesus Christ died for you, he paid in full everything that you owed. And so if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, God looks at you and in spite of every failure, every flaw, every fault, he looks at you and says, forgiven, paid in full, paid by my son. It is finished. Jesus made the complete and total payment for your sin, and nothing else ever will need to be paid. Jesus' work is all that will ever be needed to pay the price for your sin, now and forever. This word, it is finished, has the idea of completion or accomplishment. It means to complete something, not merely to end it, but to bring it to perfection or to its destined goal or to carry it through to its goal. So think about that. Jesus Christ brought his mission, brought the Father's will to its completed goal. He accomplished it. Not even one tiny thing that the Father demanded of the Son remained undone. Not one thing was forgotten. He didn't do most of it, and then now we're left to just figure out how to do the rest of it. He did it all. And we should find peace and rest and encouragement and hope in that. We sing a song, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And so this short phrase teaches us about the sufficiency of Christ's work the completed nature of Christ's work. But there's even more to it than that because this phrase is worded in such a way as to emphasize the ongoing force of his work. The consequences and results and effects of Jesus doing this are ongoing. You could think of it this way. It stands finished. It remains completed. It will always be completed. It will never be repeated, nor will it never need to be repeated. Since Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice, the results of his death continue forever. 
What did the author of Hebrews say about this? Hebrews 9.12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12 through 14, the author says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Listen to this. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus was such the perfect sacrifice that he can indeed call his work complete. It wouldn't be finished if he had to repeat his sacrifice over and over like those priests in the Old Testament had to do. Jesus' was a one-time sacrifice, a once-and-for-all offering. Its power will never diminish, its saving ability will never decrease, and its perfection will never decline. Ever. And since Jesus' work was and still is perfect and powerful, then you and I can still trust in him today and be delivered from our sins. We are nearly 2,000 years removed from Calvary, and yet God the Father still looks at the work of Jesus Christ as perfect and complete and powerful, and 2,000 years from now, if Christ has not returned, God the Father will still look at the death of his Son that way. He always will. It is finished. That was not a cry of defeat. It was a shout of victory. It was not Jesus resigning to the fact that his death was at hand. It wasn't him being relieved that this is finally just about over with. This was Jesus confirming the fact that he had accomplished everything the Father sent him to do. And having done all, he died for you. All of this that we've read about, all of the suffering, all of the mockery, all of the bloodshed, even the crucifixion and his death, he did it all because he loves you. There are too many preachers today who refuse to mention the suffering and death and blood of Christ, and they opt for, for less offensive, more motivational type feel-good messages. A joke, a poem, a quick story, and an invitation. But without the shed blood of Christ, without His perfect sacrifice, there is no forgiveness and there is no hope. So thank God there is hope and there is forgiveness because of what Jesus did for us. And thank God that that will never, ever change. We need to hear that. We need to be reminded of that, of that old, old story of Jesus and his love. Especially during this time. No matter how much or how rapidly this world changes, nothing can change the fact that Jesus Christ died for sinners. 
And so even though we are going through a, a different and difficult time right now, I can confidently say, based upon God's word, that if you've trusted in Christ, ultimately you're going to be just fine. In fact, way better than just fine. Take a moment to remember what he suffered for you and the great love that he poured out. And let this unchangeable story and love anchor you during these stormy times. If you're lost in your sin, I cannot urge you enough to repent and trust in Jesus today. He took your sin and your shame for you. He endured the Father's wrath, and He did it for you. He is all you need. It is finished. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day that we can gather together in this capacity. We, we're thankful for the technology that we have. And we pray that you have been honored and glorified and worshiped and present among us, Lord. God, we thank you most of all for Jesus Christ. Without him and without what he did for us, there would be no reason for us to gather like this. There would be no reason for us to make efforts to meet together like this. But God, he is our hope. And he's our Savior. And we thank you so much for his love for us. We pray for this world during this time. We pray for our leaders and we pray for each other. Please give us wisdom, Lord. Keep us safe if it's your will. We know it's your will that your word is proclaimed and that sinners are, sinners are brought to you. And we pray that that happens through our preaching and through our witnessing. God, we thank you for your word and for your son. Forgive us of our sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.